Holland Wilcox acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all First Nations people joining us today. Hello, welcome back to season two of our Capital Markets podcast. I'm John Hutchinson. Today, we're looking at something that's very quickly become a big topic, not only in capital markets, but in corporate life more generally, and that is ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. It's particularly important for listed entities, given the public nature of any ESG disclosures, the interest investors now have in ESG issues when capital is being raised, and of course, the potential for regulatory and class action risk. To discuss further, I'm joined today by fellow partners, Julian Hammond from our disputes team, and Vanessa Murphy from our corporate team. Welcome to you both. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Uh, Julian, maybe start with you. Uh, has the law in this area changed recently? Look, John, it's a good question in that it has not changed at this stage, or we might say yet, uh, but there is significant change forthcoming in this area. And really, with it, as with everything ESG related at the moment, the change here has really been the emphasis from regulators rather than a strict legal change. So if we consider across the various areas for disclosure, that being continuous disclosure, annual reports and the OFR within the annual report, um, and then obviously general disclosure risks in relation to misleading and deceptive um, yep. disclosures, then the law itself has not changed in that regard. But what has changed here is the emphasis. So, of course, with continuous disclosure, depending on the circumstances, disclosure of client-related risk might already be required by the law in contexts such as a prospectus or a continuous disclosure announcement. And as we all know, listed companies must disclose material price-sensitive information on a timely basis. So if price-sensitive information is related to climate disclosures, then it must be disclosed to maintain integrity of the market and ensure transparency. Um, Obviously, in addition to that, fundraising documents have a direct link to investment decisions. And so as a result, client-related information that helps investors assess risks and returns and make informed investment decisions must be included. Uh, obviously, prospectuses are the most common type of fundraising disclosure document, and they must not include misleading or deceptive statements under Section 7281 of the Corporations Act. So um, in relation to your question, uh, going back to that, uh, again, the law hasn't changed here, but the emphasis um, uh, certainly has. And we've seen that in particular with the OFR as part of the annual reports. That certainly was the first focus for ASIC over um, the last few years in relation to uh, climate and ESG-related risks, where you have to have a reasonable basis, we all know, for forward-looking statements in respect of that. Um, and that's a pre-existing requirement. Uh, and, of course, um, directors must make a declaration that the financial statements comply with accounting standards of true and fair and the company is solvent. And directors must exercise their duty of care and diligence um, under Section 180 of the Corporations Act when preparing annual reports as well. Um, and companies registered schemes and disclosing entities must have their report audited and obtained an auditor's report as well. So for listed entities, climate disclosures would be re required in the Operating and Financial Review, or the OFRs, I've called it there, within, within the director's report. And ASIC itself has considered that the law currently requires an OFR to include a discussion of climate-related risk where it is a material risk that could affect the company's achievement of its financial performance. And certainly over the last few years, there has been a much closer examination of that by ASIC. Again, not a change in the law, but a change in emphasis, looking at that detail much closer. Um, and of course, 
as I said earlier, there's disclosures under the Corporations Act and under the Australian Consumer Law that can't be false and misleading, obviously an issue for directors as well. So again, the law itself has not changed yet. Um, earlier this year in July, June, July of this year, Treasury released a second round of consultation for proposed mandatory climate-related risk disclosures. Um, and we'll talk about what that actually means a little bit later in our chat today, but that's really the focus of where change will be coming. But at the moment, the law has not changed, but the emphasis has. Yeah. Julian, that's great. Thank you very much. So, uh, Vanessa, so talk, Julian's talking there about climate disclosures within the context of um, continuous disclosure by public companies, their annual reports, uh, prospectus, uh, prospectus that they may make, um, and price sensitive information more generally. Obviously, that's an area for ASIC's interest. So what, what are you seeing in terms of um, the, the interest of ASIC in this area? Uh, we've certainly seen um, ASIC and the other regulators um, really have a, a very keen focus on this, um, which I think Julian sort of alluded to is the, is the reason for um, what might feel like a change in the law, which isn't actually a strict change in the, the law yet. Um, and I think the reason that the regulators are so heavily focused on it is because investors are now much more interested in it. And if investors are um, investing or making their investment decisions based on the particular um, uh, particular characteristics of a product that might have a sustainability um, element to it or the disclosures that an entity has made in relation to its ESG policies um, and procedures and are relying on those in making their investment decision, um, then obviously the regulator is more focused on that because they are influencing the investors' decisions. And then looking more generally at the capital raising process, uh, what should listed entities now be thinking about in relation to ESG when they're going through the process of raising capital? That's maybe a question of both of you, but maybe Vanessa, maybe stay with you. Companies are certainly very focused on what investors want to see and need to see to meet their own ESG requirements in terms of what an investment looks like. Um, so going through the capital raising process, making sure that they are able to make the right commitments in respect of their um, ESG procedures and the way that their um, business operates, or um, in a managed funds context, the way that um, a product has been designed that might incorporate ESG considerations. The important thing then is to make sure that those statements that are being made for the sake of investors um, and ensuring that they can invest banks that are fully informed about those ESG considerations meets all of those um, requirements that Julian spoke about in particular, making sure that the statements aren't misleading and deceptive and aren't in particular, there's been um, from ASIC and the other regulators a focus on language that's sort of a bit vague um, or, you know, ASIC referring to it as greenwashing that might be sort of not really specifically identifying the ESG um, considerations um, and benefits of a particular product or business um, and are just making sort of sweeping claims in relation to um, ESG considerations. So yeah. it's sort of a balance for entities at the moment of being able to um, make sure that they can include what they need to to raise capital from an investor perspective, but not doing it in a way that falls foul of what ASIC expects in terms of the way that disclosures are, are made. So I think we'll come back briefly to talk about greenwashing shortly, but um, more generally, what should company boards and management be thinking about in terms of any changes to their day-to-day -day operations to reduce ESG-related regulatory risks? Um, 
Julian, maybe over to you. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, look, I think in the context of answering this question, obviously there's the existing legislative environment, which, as we say, has not changed. There's just been a change of emphasis here and a change in perhaps the level of granularity and scrutiny which has been applied by regulators. Um, I think moving forward, the key risk here for entities is really in relation to um, what has been proposed as a phased approach to mandatory sustainability reporting, which may well kick in from 1 July 2024. So as I said, in June, July of this year, Treasury released a public consultation paper, which outlined the proposed implementation of mandatory climate-related disclosures in Australia. And the current proposal would require climate-related disclosures for all entities phased over size thresholds uh, beginning as early as 1 July 2024. And so it's not the final legislation and obviously uh, amendments um, are in the process of being considered as a consequence of the consultation phase, but there, and there is a proposed timeline for mandatory reporting here. Um, but I really think for entities moving forward in this space, um, you would be remiss uh, uh, of the entity to not consider um, the core elements of the potential disclosures and the way in which this relates to um, the Australian Accounting Board, Accounting Standards Board, and the IFRS client-related disclosures information as well. So those core elements of disclosures are really summarised under four pillars: being governance, how the entity will monitor client-related risks and opportunities, strategy the anticipated impact of client-related business on business models, value chains, financial position and performance, including a scenario analysis as well, uh, risk management, the processes used to identify, assess and manage climate-related risks and opportunities, and having metrics and targets, um, and that means disclosure of client-related metrics, uh, and that includes potentially moving forward what's called scope one to three, greenhouse gas, gas emissions, and the progress towards any targets the entity has set. Um, and these really require businesses to assess the impact of physical risks as well, uh, for example, natural uh, increased uh, natural disasters and transition risks. Um, so really moving towards a, uh, a lower carbon economy and uh, the impact of those risks on their current and future financial position and performance. So um, some of that language is a bit unfamiliar. So I think it would be um, it's imperative for listed entities to consider that and get across that detail. So. Scope one to three greenhouse gas emissions uh, describes sources of emissions expressed in kilotons of carbon dioxide equivalents. And that really goes across um, sources owned or controlled by the entity as scope one, indirect emissions from generation of purchased or acquired energy under scope two, and that's consumed by the entity as well. And scope three being indirect emissions from the entity's value chain, including upstream and downstream emissions. So there's a big piece of work there if that's yeah. required, um, yeah. the company's moving forward from 1 July 2024. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks, John. There's obviously a huge amount going on there that we're going to need to keep track of uh, moving forward uh, next, next year. Um, just briefly, um, it just when things have gone slightly wrong and a listed entity receives a notice from ASIC about an ESG-related issue, what, what are the first steps you'd recommend they take? Look, I think there's probably four or five steps you should ordinarily take. Probably the first step really is to um, work out as best you can why ASIC is um, or potentially is not interested in you. Um, presumably we're talking about notices under Section 30 or 33 um, uh, of the ASIC Act in relation to um, uh, production of 
um, specified books or records in a personal company's possession, um, really step one is to work out why they're interested in you because the notice itself will refer to circumstances in live and the um, ASIC statutory powers, um, and that may include an investigation already on foot and any uh, any legislative provisions which are suspected or alleged to have been contravened. So that's really the first step. And then obviously you would progress through the ordinary steps in responding to a notice to ASIC, and that would in, um, include is the notice valid, um, are the documents in your possession, custody or control, um, is there a reasonable excuse for non-compliance, which is um, you know, largely not available, um, but that also has the corollary of um, if you need further time to comply, given sometimes the timelines of production um, are inordinately short from our friends at ASIC, it's really much, very much in your interest to communicate that early and clearly to the regulator and um, uh, you know, agree um, uh, a more expanded timeline to be able to respond to the notice. Uh, and obviously then go through and consider whether documents are privileged or confidential um, and determine the best way to um, respond to ASIC in relation to that. Obviously, with privileged documents, um, you can claim the privilege, um, uh, but you should be able to substantiate that claim. And um, there may be uh, agreements reached with ASIC to provide documents, but um, not uh, certainly uh, to have an agreement that they are not, no privilege is waived in those documents um, uh, despite the production having been made to ASIC in that regard. So there's really the, the key five or six steps really yep. um, as to what you would do um, if you do receive a notice. But certainly you should be engaging with your lawyers, um, your friendly regulatory enforcement practitioners such as myself or others in our CDR team um, to get some guidance in relation to that as soon as the notice is received. Thanks, Julian. Um, we've covered a lot of ground there in a, a short space of time. Um, just before we close, I guess... Um, Julian or Vanessa, any final thoughts on what might come next in relation to um, ESG? Look, I'll go first there, John. And I'll just say I think um, a lot of the emphasis, and we've talked about that briefly and touched on greenwashing as an area and, and focus of um, ASICs and, and other regulators, such as the ACCC's concerns as well. I think um, often the focus is around climate and climate-related risks and um, green-related credentials. I suspect an untapped area and um, uh, certainly one that is um, on the horizon is what is called blue washing or perhaps social washing, which is, um, uh, again, a form of misleading deceptive conduct in relation to, um, uh, you know, social or governance risks, um, for example, as part of the modern slavery um, changes or supply chain issues there. And I suspect that will be, again, if the law doesn't change, it will be another change of emphasis where that part of the ESG risk um, landscape will become the focus of regulators moving forward. Thanks, um, Julian. Vanessa, any, anything further? I think we'll probably see um, ESG considerations feed into sort of the other regulatory regimes um, or processes that are already in place. So obviously there's a big misleading and deceptive conduct focus in terms of ESG, but things like the design of product um, and in particular the design and distribution obligations um, that relate to financial products, I think we're probably going to see sort of ESG considerations needing to be taken into account there and sort of forming part of that, the actual design process for a product um, rather than just the perhaps the marketing disclosures and, and regulatory disclosures at the other end of the process for when the product's actually being launched. Yep. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, so blue washing, you heard it here first. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. 
as always, please get in touch with us if you have any questions. You can find our details on our website, which is hornandwilcox.com.au, or connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please rate, review, or follow our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thank you, Julian and Vanessa. This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.